Awesome. Well, we are going to continue in our look at the life of Christ. Uh, who knows how long we'll be doing this? Probably another year at least, I would assume. Um, and we've been doing it since uh, January, but we had a big hiatus in the middle, so we haven't been doing it quite a year. All right. Uh, well, we are going to continue by looking at uh, an episode out of Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Uh, and again, we kind of, I, I, I as the teacher have the prerogative of choosing which gospel from which we'll get our lesson. Now you can find what we're going to look at today in its kernel and expand it a little bit actually in Matthew 12 and Luke 11. But uh, we're going to use this account because of how Mark has framed it uh, with, with some reactions to Jesus. Now in Mark's gospel, we've only gotten past uh, at this point the naming of the twelve. So it's on the, immediately on the heels of that. And a lot of what we've been doing, of course, is after the naming of the Twelve. And, and, it's, and it's basically scholarly, you know, guesstimation as to where these episodes fall. But we can know where things are roughly by how reactions go and where they are in other Gospels, those sorts of things. So this is much later in the other Gospels simply because they include more things. Mark is very, very quick, more about action things happening. Well, in, in, you'll notice the outline. I have it under three points, not two. Whoa, uh, I know. Uh, and if you're familiar with apologetics at all, you will recognize this from famously from C.S. Lewis and then through other apologists who alliterated uh, this. And, and point one, lunatic. Point two, liar. Point three, lord. As three reactions to Jesus, and those are still common reactions today. We're going to unpack that a little bit. Um, I'm going to shamelessly, uh, well, no, proudly, actually, uh, read a little bit from Mere Christianity, a uh, famous passage from the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and you'll hear how this is framed uh, in his, his work. And it's the, at the conclusion of a chapter entitled The Invasion. And Lewis says, quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. And that's, here's what they often say. Well, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis continues, well, this is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be just a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic, on the level with a man who said he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being merely a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And it's from that passage that you had later Christian apologists alliterate the options of liar, lunatic, Lord. Now I'm not going to use this as our text. Although it could be. No, I'm not going to use this as our text. Uh, rather, we're going to look at um, 
this episode in Mark, and we're going to see these same three reactions. And it's interesting the quarters from which they come. So this is on the hills, heels of him having just named his apostles. And then we'll see then this episode. You're going to start with, you're going to start with family or friends, and it's up in the air as to which. Then move to critics, skeptics, theologians, scribes. That's the next group. And then finally a group who have gathered at his feet. So let's look at these three reactions. Uh, beginning in verse 20, someone read uh, just three verses, 20 through 21. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, quote, he is out of his mind. This is one of those passages where, you know, if this, if this were all just made up and legend, probably stuff like this wouldn't be in there. Um, but, so let's find out what's happening here. So they came home. What home? We don't know. It could probably be in Capernaum, maybe the home of Peter and Andrew used as a, used as a base, basically, in Capernaum. And as usual, there were multitudes clamoring to get to Jesus. And it got to a point where they couldn't even break bread. Your Bible may say they couldn't even eat bread together, because that's really what it says there. It has, there's bread mentioned. But basically they couldn't, have, they couldn't even have a meal. It was so busy, so packed, so many things going on. So there's one or two reactions here. It, they, it, that was finally the last straw. You know, people saying, well, we can't even eat. But that would be a good one. Or it could be, well, he's not even taking care of himself. He's not, he can't even take care of himself. Maybe that explains some of the impetus behind why now we have this group who've come to basically take him back home, take him away, maybe take him back to Nazareth, get him away from all of these people, saying that he's lost his senses, meaning he, he's, he's not looking at this right. Either it could be that he, they think he's nuts or that he's just not seeing things the way they are. He's just gone too far. This kind of reminds me perhaps of you know, we have uh, today, a lot of folks have, you know, will hire deprogrammers to kidnap their children, to bring them back from cultish behavior, and to deprogram them. I don't know that that's what's going on here, but you see this reaction to Jesus. And it's from those who are either family or friends, one or the other. And I say that because the term used here in the Greek is basically those on his side or from his side that's the term that's used and it can be used as both in other places in scripture either as family or as just close friends those sorts of things um, I tend to go with family simply because at the end of this passage we're going to have the family still there family is mentioned in fact mother and brothers and sisters are mentioned so, I'm going to go with family. What would lead Jesus' family to this? Now, there's probably some concern for him. That's number one. But also, they too didn't fully grasp the nature of the kingdom and what he's been doing. Uh, remember, there's opposition rising from all sides, and there's not a realization from them either as to the nature of the kingdom that he's proclaiming and how it's coming about. He's doing all these miracles and things, but... You have all of these people coming to him, and he's, he's getting in the face of the religious leaders, 
that's dangerous. He's rocking the boat, the status quo. He's, he's chosen to be a vagabond. He's dependent on other people for his sustenance. He's not working. Other people have to support him, as we saw last week when we looked at the women in his ministry who were with him. And he really doesn't seem to care what other people think. <clears throat> All of those are things that normally we would want for our children. You want security, you want safety, and you want society to really think the best of you. Well, he's bucked all three of these. So, naturally, perhaps, they're worried. This guy, is, is he, has he lost it? All right, well, there's our lunatic from our, from our outline. Now, when Lewis, of course, and apologists make their argument, they're talking about lunatic of the sense where Jesus claims to be and thinks himself to be the Messiah but is not. And people who claim to be messiahs or think themselves to be a messiah and aren't, we usually put away. <laughs> there are people in institutionalized today who have a messiah complex. And that's really what the apologists are looking at. I don't know that in this context per, per se that's what they're thinking, that he thinks he's the messiah but he's not, but they do nonetheless think he's lost it a little bit. And that's one of the options that's out there. That's one of the reactions to Jesus, that he's crazy. He's doing this the wrong way, at the least, or he thinks he's something he's not, at the worst. In this particular instance, I think it's the former, but you get the idea. There are people today, and Lewis says you've you got to make your choice. He could be proclaiming that which he's not, which makes him crazy, a lunatic. But now we have another group. Now we have some scribes, meaning theologians, those who are experts in scripture. Uh, in the other accounts, we're also told that there are Pharisees among them, coming from Jerusalem, most likely from the high council, from the Sanhedrin, to investigate, to find out. Uh, in the other accounts from the other two gospels, there is a specific mention of an instance of a demon possession where Jesus exercises the demon, which is the trigger for them coming. But he's been doing this often. So these group of experts from Jerusalem, these critics, these theologians from Jerusalem come, and they don't question him. They actually make an accusation, basically calling him, point two, a liar. And not just any liar but a liar of extreme proportions. Let's hear what they have to say. Um, beginning in verse uh, 22, and then going all the way through verse 30. 22 through 30. And whoever's going to read, I need to get close. Me? I'm reading. Oh, I was just told I'm reading. Yes, the, the scribe Tom told me. Well, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, and here's the lie. I mean, here's what they're proclaiming, that Jesus is a liar. He's possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Well, he called them to himself, and he began speaking to them in parables. Now, parables, as you recall, doesn't mean stories per se, but illustrations. 
How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. Now, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, well, he cannot stand. He's finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds that strong man. And then he can plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And then Mark adds, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now in the midst of this, we have that statement about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which has caused a lot of consternation over the centuries. We've got to prep ourselves for that statement. We don't just want to jump in there. Let's prep ourselves for that statement and look at the context. So here, as I said previously, we have these experts coming. And rather than actually say he's not doing these things, they can see the miracles. They're not saying he's not performing miracles. What they're going to do is look at those miracles and attribute them to evil, to Satan. Hence their statement, he is doing this because he is possessed by Beelzebul. That's a term you throw around a lot today, right? Um, Old Testament is Beelzebub, New Testament Beelzebul. It's probably just transformed over the years. The, the, the history of that term has to do with, you can hear Baal, Baal right? False god, Baal, Baal. All right. And it has to do with a Baal on high. And over time, the Jews, kind of lampooning that, have transformed it into Beel's, the Baal on the mound, meaning a mound of manure. And hence you have, today, most people understanding, and rightly so, the term meaning Lord of the Flies. So that's where, this is where Lord of the Flies comes from. So if you had to read that in junior high, now you know. Hopefully your instructor brought this out. If he or she did not, you missed a lot of the point, especially of when they had the totem in the middle of the island with the, the, the head and the flies, and you missed it. There's a lot going on there, because Beelzebul's in charge, the Lord of the Flies. So he's saying, he's basically another term, a euphemism for Satan. So they're using, though, a lampooning term even more of an insult, right? Because people would, they would understand that term. And he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. That's why he can do this. Basically, they're accused, accusing him of sorcery, black magic. And in fact, <coughs> excuse me, extra, extra biblical sources from the Jews from those early periods talking about Jesus, the rabbis, do indeed say that is why he was crucified, that he was crucified for practicing sorcery and leading people astray, black magic. Well, Jesus has been accused now of this. Notice, they're lying, but they're accusing him of being a liar, that he is not what he claimed to be, that he's saying, or by his actions, trying to get you to think he's the Messiah, 
but he's not. And in fact, they're saying he's just the opposite. So not just a lunatic is the first group said he's out of his senses. Now you have people who are saying he's a liar. And Jesus uses simple logic to refute them. It's, we don't have to really unpack that much. The logic is pretty clear. He even says, well, how can Satan cast out Satan? That's number one. That's just dumb, okay, is what he would say. And you can imagine the other people who were there listening, just kind of snickering. You know, we still tend to, but he goes, that's dumb. How can Satan cast out Satan? The word Satan by then has become a proper noun. Early on, it was just a, it was just a descriptor. It means the accuser, the, the one who accuses God's people. Hence, think back to Job. The Satan, the accuser, comes to God to accuse Job. By now, it's a proper name. More diabology has progressed, if you want to think of that. Not theology, but diabology, to the point where there's an understanding of this personal being who has fallen and who is in opposition to all the things that God is trying to accomplish. So Jesus recognizes, of course, this as spiritual warfare. Demon possession and people being freed from demons, I'd say that's spiritual warfare. And he says, well, Satan can't cast out Satan. And then he just gives why. Well, you can't divide a kingdom. It can't stand. A house divided itself can't stand. And if he's rid against himself, if he's using me to do this, well, he's, he's going to be out of business soon. Which, of course, is why Jesus came. That's part of why Jesus came, to put Satan out of business. And so, while he's doing this, they're accusing him of, well, it's by satanic power. And that's why Jesus is saying, well, this is dumb. That's not how he's going to win. If you're going to win, you're not going to fight against yourself. And then he transitions. See, the logic is clear. But then he transitions and has a, has a warning for these people. You might, in other words, they might just be doing this just to get the crowds away from Jesus. Yeah, he's doing this by Satan's power. And there's a warning here. Don't play with that sort of stuff. There's a, it's a heavy warning. That's why he says, well, well hold on, I, I skipped a little section. He then says, he then gives a hint as to what he's doing. And he, he, he compares uh, a strong man who's in a house to Satan. He says, if you're going to clean his house out, you're going to have to bind him first. And of course, the implication is that's what I'm doing. I'm not working against him. I've bound him so that I can free these people. I can plunder his house. That's what's happening. You've got it all backwards. And now, we, we transition to what I said a minute ago. He says, all sins will be forgiven. Whatever blasphemies. Now, of course, that doesn't mean automatically. There's still repentance and faith. He's saying the potential of forgiveness for these things is there, though. All you have to do is look through the history of Israel and see all sorts of things that have been forgiven. All you have to do is look at Peter or Paul. Paul persecuted and put Christians to death, and he was forgiven. Peter denied Jesus three times. I mean, point blank, when he could see him. And he was still forgiven. And that's why Jesus is saying, there's potential for forgiveness for all of these things. And by the way, that's hopeful. We miss the hopeful part here. Does that make sense? We, we so concentrate on the one thing he's going to say here in, in a sec that we miss all sins. 
all blasphemies. All your past, everything we've been through, we think is, ah, oh, no one can forgive that. If you actually think it's unforgivable, it's forgivable. If you've gotten to that point of being in such grief and torment about your own sin, to think that no one could forgive, that means there is forgiveness available in Jesus Christ. What we're really saying when we say that is, there's no excuse for our sin. And you're right, there isn't. But he's not saying all sin will be excused. He's saying it will be forgiven. When excuses end is when forgiveness begins. So yeah, no, there's no excuse for our sins. But there is forgiveness for all sins, all blasphemies, but one. And that's where we zero in. And rightly so, it's kind of scary. I mean, it sounds scary. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Like, whoa, a sin that is not forgivable. And of course, there's been a lot of ink spilt by a lot of people worried that they've committed this sin. Well, A, if you're worried about it, you haven't. Okay, if you're worried, I wonder if I've committed this sin, which means there's, there, you're on the edge of repentance if you did. Does that make sense? So there's, you're not, you don't have to worry about that. So A, if you're worried about it, you haven't. So take that home. Share that with others who may be worried about it. Well, then what is it? What is this thing, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Now, we're told in the other two accounts that he's doing these things by the Spirit of God. And you'll notice that the conclusion of this account in verse, what was it, 30? Yeah, in verse 30, that Mark adds, they were saying it was by an evil spirit, an unclean spirit he was doing these. So you have that direct comparison. It's, it's calling the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the devil. It's actually looking at light and calling it dark, looking at goodness and calling it evil. It is an attitude... In a, in a position that puts you out of the realm of forgiveness. It's not as God is going, oh, 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 I heard that. No forgiveness for you. Aha, gotcha. It's, it's an attitude that places us outside the realm of forgiveness. And everything else is in that realm. So it's amazing that that would be that one thing. Well, how would that happen? Um, if there is a surgeon who is willing to perform life-saving surgery on you, but you think that he's, he's some sort of murdering maniac, and you don't give consent for the surgery, you die. In other words, the one avenue of hope open to you, you have declared null and void. You die. If we're all out in the desert and, and just dying of thirst, oh, look, the power of suggestion, she drinks, and we're dying of thirst. Oh, me too. No, okay. Um, and I say to you, look, water. And you say, no, that's poison. Don't listen to him. It's poison. And you don't drink, you die. The one thing that will save you you have declared null and void, or not just that, evil. What's happening here is the one act of the Holy Spirit, the bringing about the kingdom through the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, 
they have declared null and void. It's not just an arbitrary whim of God that, oh, bless me, the Holy Spirit. You're going to hell. It's, where is forgiveness? There's no cross number two. There's one cross. There's one Messiah. And you have cut yourself off in your willing sinfulness and the ability to look at what is light and call it dark. To look at good and call it evil. And in this sense, in this case, to look at the expulsion of demons by the power of the Holy Spirit and declare it by the power of Satan. So it's not a trick. It's not some sort of theological you know, line you cross and then suddenly you're condemned. It is a steadfast attitude of looking at hope and dismissing it. Not only dismissing it, but calling it not hope, but danger. So, again, if, you've, if you're worried whether you've done this, you haven't. In fact, you're sitting here, you're okay. You didn't look at Jesus and go, no, he's not the Savior. I don't think. Well, remember, in, from the outline, I have liar because that's one of the reactions. That Jesus is just lying. He's not really the Messiah and he knows it. The other is, he thinks he's the Messiah, but he isn't. Well, what's the other alternative? Well, that he's who he claimed to be. And our response is to fall at his feet and call him Lord. Well, let's look then at the conclusion of this passage, beginning at verse 31. And someone read that aloud for us through the end of the chapter. Alright, thank you. And here we have the reappearance now of the family, and that's why I tend to go with this as family at the beginning of the episode, uh, because they're mentioned here quite specifically. Now we could, at this point, if we wanted to, go into all sorts of theological uh, uh, arguments and biblical arguments about, okay, now wait a minute, I, there's a whole branch of Christianity two branches actually, that declare that Jesus, that Jesus' mother was perpetually a virgin. Who are these brothers and people? What's going on here? And of course, that's one of the divides in Protestantism and Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy is that very thing. We're not going to jump into that pool right now, okay? But let's just let the text speak for what it is. His family, his immediate family, is outside and you know, have they come to take him? Is this, is this now the intervention? Is this when it's going to happen? Have they come to take him? But those who are with him, for sure the twelve, perhaps others, you know, through word of mouth, say, hey, your family's outside. Your mother, your brothers. Some older manuscripts actually add sisters here because sisters is in the final verse. But old, I mean, some newer manuscripts, older manuscripts ha don't have that. Behold, your mother, your brothers are outside. They're looking for you. All right. 
Um, and all of you have been in that position, right? You've been with friends. And there's always that, you know, you're with your friends and all that. Hey, your mom and dad are outside. That's usually, you know, oh, no. Oh, no. Now, why is Joseph not mentioned? Uh, chances are most speculate that he has since passed away. Okay. Uh, but, that you know, that's, oh, man. But Jesus, of course, he knows if the first part of this, uh, this particular passage we looked at has to do with his family, he knows why they're there. So that's why he would answer sort of cryptically. It doesn't seem to make sense unless we know that, that context that he would say, well, well, who are my mother and my brothers, really? Because I've just chosen you guys to be a new family, a new Israel, a new thing. So really, let's go ahead and look at family too. Who are my mother and my brothers in this new thing? Now, this is, you know, family's a big deal. We're used to our families in the West being all over the country. We could all talk about where our people are right now. They're all over the place. Whereas, uh, you know, in the ancient world, and to Jews especially, Israel, being Israel, those clans and those families were want to stay together, to be together. And some of that was just for preservation as well, the necessity of having more manpower to, to work the fields, those sorts of things. But it was together. Whereas he's saying, now, in this new thing that I'm doing, he's not discounting family. He's not saying, reject your family altogether. He's not saying that. But he's saying, in this new thing, who... Who do you think my, my mother, my brothers, in other words, those that are my most intimate, who are those people? And they look, they're, they're looking on him, those who are sitting around him. <laughs> so he says, behold, right here. He says, behold, you guys, you are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he's my brother, sister, mother, family. You guys. Yes, I know the ones that I'm linked to are out there. But right now, you need to know that you are my true family. We're, I've called you out to do this new thing. And you are at my feet, falling at my feet. And they may not truly understand yet the full nature of what it means to call Jesus Lord. But they're on the way. And they've dropped everything. And that's our third point. He's who he claimed to be. And we listen to him. And we follow him. And by doing so, we then become part of that intimate family. Not that our other earthly families don't count. But there are many, many tales and testimonies of people who have decided to follow Jesus, fall at his feet and call him Lord, and their own families reject them, want nothing to do with them, think they are either lying or lunatics. True identity with Jesus. Having called him Lord, others called them crazy. But... That's the nature of the call. And we're seeing that more and more in the United States, guys. One of the things that's happening, and a lot of, a lot of us in the churches are kind of 
struggling with is that now we're recognizing our culture at, at large as largely post-Christian in many ways. The, the, you know, the trappings of Christianity, the morality of Christianity for a while held it together. The nation could be called Christian in that sense, even if people didn't openly declare Jesus as Lord. But now even that's gone and fading fast. And we are now where England was 70 years ago. Recognizing, wow, most people have no clue who Jesus is. Most people have no idea what any of this means. This is just religious mumbo-jumbo. And they see a lot of their kids who maybe go away to college and instead of reject the faith, come to the faith. And they think, what are you doing? You're crazy. We are now on that, in that boat. And that's what's causing us a lot of angst, those of us who are older and remember the old days. Those are gone. And now we find ourselves really having to stick out for the cause of Christ. Willing to be embarrassed, willing to be made fun of, willing to be made called crazy, all of those things. That's where we are. Well, take heart. They called our Lord those same things. Let's pray. We're grateful, Father, for this time we can share together and for the fact that uh, we can be here today given our circumstances and gather around your word. Our prayer now is that we take to heart what we've learned this morning and we will go forward recognizing that uh, we are indeed part of that family that calls Jesus Christ Lord, Savior, and that we'd be willing uh, maybe to be a little bit vulnerable for those things. Thanks as well for your Holy Spirit, who has preserved these things, inspired these things, and against whom we have not blasphemed. Thank you, Father, uh, again, this time together, in Christ's name. Amen. 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 See you, podcast people. <laughs>